welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, my name is Tim Beck, and I'm a news reporter for Madden America. I'm pleased to have with me today Dr. Felicity Thomas and Dr. Richard Bing. Dr. Thomas is a senior research fellow in the medical school and a senior research fellow on the cultural contexts of health in the College of Humanities at the University of Exeter. And Dr. Bing is a professor in primary care research at University of Plymouth. Dr. Bing is also trained as a general practitioner with a special interest in mental health care. Together, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Bing are part of the Distress Project, which, according to their website, consists of a team of researchers in the United Kingdom who seek to learn about why and how poverty-related issues have become increasingly pathologized. This includes exploring how high levels of antidepressant prescriptions and use are impacting people's health and well-being in low-income communities in Southwest England. Their recent report, published in April 2019, titled Poverty, Pathology, and Pills, situates increasing rates of mental health diagnosis and psychotropic prescription within socioeconomic and policy trends across the UK. An overarching conclusion of this research was that there is a need to reconceptualize the way that health professionals respond to poverty-related distress. This requires a response that recognizes the biopsychosocial and reduces pressures on general practitioners to make rapid decisions around diagnosis and prescribing. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. So if you don't mind, we'll just go ahead and jump right into the questions. So just to get started, can you each talk a little bit about your personal histories and research backgrounds? So I've got quite a diverse um, research background. I started off working in anthropology and geography, uh, but I then moved on to work in international development and also have an educational background. Um, And now I work in a transdisciplinary centre, which is looking at how to better create uh, healthy publics. The idea of healthy publics being sort of an inverse of, of public health, which seems which is sort of quite a top-down approach to people's health and well-being. It's about creating healthy publics from, from the bottom up. Um, I, in terms of what I'm interested in, I'm interested in social responses to ill health, disease and suffering, and how social exclusion and injustice can shape health outcomes. Okay, great. Thank you. And Dr. Bing, could you share a little bit about your personal history and research background? Yes, so I'm a general practitioner, a family doctor in the UK, and um, before that had some experiences working in in Africa, um, like many academics in primary care um, who've had similar uh, experiences that tend to broaden our perspective. I started my practice very much with a um, we've got to sort out the diagnosis and treatment of depression and 20 years ago was uh, you know part of the defeat depression campaign trying to encourage general practitioners to to diagnose and and provide more antidepressant medication and uh, over the years have been involved in in redesigning services setting up new interventions and evaluating them but also staying very involved in in thinking about what what it means to practice and provide the kind of one-to-one relationship uh, with individuals within practice and have done some detailed uh, conversation and other interactional uh, analyses as part of the research. Okay, great. Thank you. 
And just out of curiosity, are there any experiences that either of you had in your respective careers that you can remember or really the lives for that matter that led you to become interested in the doing this sort of research that you do now? I think for me, I, I did my PhD uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa looking at HIV and how people conceptualized HIV in a region that had a 43% HIV prevalence rate, but nobody would talk about HIV. Um, everyone was in, very much in denial about it. And I, I was trying to understand what was going on and looking at the kind of narratives that were used to explain what was going on. And it, it whilst the, um, the health services in the region were, were pursuing a very biomedical approach and you know, lots of public education campa- campaigns around HIV and AIDS, they, they were very, very ineffective. So I was looking at how people uh, in rural areas of the region actually did understand what was happening to them. Um, so I think, you know, understanding people's, the way people interpret illness or, or interpret ill health, what that means to them and the role of medications within that is something I've always been interested in. So for me, there are so many things that have uh, brought me to the point uh, where we started this project, but they included working as a GP with a special interest in mental health in a, a team for young people with mental health problems, quite significant mental health problems. And I started to, to realise that the diagnostic system really didn't work uh, for this group. And we were dealing with people with very, very distinct and, and, and problematic social uh, problems alongside uh, distressing symptoms. Then uh, I think at the time when Felicity approached me, I was working in a practice and I was seeing the multiple uh, load of psychotropic medications that, that individuals in our very uh, deprived area were taking. So, so not just a concern about antidepressants, but also opioids, gabapentinoids, and uh, the prescription of antipsychotic medication for people without uh, a psychosis uh, diagnosis. And then alongside that, I'm basically a generalist practitioner and, and, and researcher, but have become increasingly interested in, in critical realism as a way of kind of holding the different views uh, from a kind of an ontological uh, perspective. Excellent. Thank you so much. Drawing on that a little bit further, uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of the Distress Project and sort of how it got started, how you each became affiliated with it? Okay. Um, so. At the time of the project, I had been working um, in a different part of the university that was sort of concerned, concerned more with issues of um, sustainability in healthcare. And one of the things that I was particularly interested in was the way that medications were being prescribed. And, and if you look at many medications, and you'll see a huge increase in, in prescriptions in the past few decades. And there didn't seem to be many conversations going on at the time about why that was. And there was a, sort of an, um, an implicit assumption that this was a good thing and that it meant that we were addressing uh, health challenges rather than taking a slightly more critical perspective and saying, well, why might this be, you know, well, what, what's going on on the ground in a cultural and social sense um, and also a sort of policy sense? What's the agendas that are driving this increase in medicine use? Um, I was also at the time working in a couple of very low-income communities in the UK. So I was seeing the everyday stresses and the hardship that people were facing, but also the very high use of antidepressant medications in those communities. Um, we've also seen in the past few years in the UK a big government drive to 
support mental health, um, you know, which is which is great. It's part of uh, the drive to destigmatize mental health issues and, and to increase treatment availability to people who need it. And on the surface, that all sounds very admirable. However, what, we, what I was seeing in the communities I was working within is that this was taking place within the context of very harsh welfare reforms. We, we've had a long period of austerity in this country. There's been a lot of welfare reforms which are really quite punitive, and, and many people were really suffering as a result of that. So I was trying to look at how those two things kind of came together. You know, on one hand, we have a government that says they're supporting mental health. On the other hand, in very low income communities, what we're seeing is actually people are experiencing more and more distress because of the hardships of poverty, which are also the government agenda. So how do the mental health agenda and the welfare agendas kind of match up and come together on what that actually meant for people's lives on the, on the ground? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Ring? Well, uh, for me, um, it was being being approached by Felicity. Um, I, uh, you know, I had had conversations with people indicating, you know, my interest in in the problems of living in a resource poor community and of uh, the prescriptions. And so we got together. Felicity came and sat in uh, my practice. Uh, we talked, and uh, she went away and be- wrote a beautiful proposal. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't say no to being involved in this. Excellent. Yeah. So it seems like the issues that the Distress Project focuses on are issues that have traditionally been marginalized within healthcare communities. Would you say that's true? I think there's 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 very little that is bringing together the the discourse within consultations and the discourse is that are going on within the community around mental health and and trying to examine these from a general practice perspective. Uh, so within the UK, because uh, general practitioners, family doctors are the, the the first point of call for many people with mental health problems, it's particularly pertinent, uh, but has been really understudied. I think as well what's also been understudied is actually really trying to understand what's going on from the perspectives of people in low-income communities. It's, it's certainly a community of people that tend to be quite neglected in healthcare research generally, and particularly in mental health research. And I think as well, certainly in the UK, so much of the uh, literature around mental health care is based on what goes on within the consultation, rather than actually trying to set that in the broader context of people's lives once they actually leave the surgery. Excellent, thank you. So given the way that these issues have traditionally been marginalized within healthcare communities and specifically in psychiatry, it seems like to me that you're approaching this from a more critical perspective than you would typically see in mainstream research. So I'm just curious, would either of you identify yourselves with the critical psychiatry movement or are there any other theoretical traditions or social movements that either of you would identify with? I think it wasn't something I explicitly set out to identify with. Um, I mean, my, my interests primarily were in health inequalities, um, and I guess I was less familiar with a lot of the um, psych- psychiatry and anti-psychiatry movements at that, that stage. Um, however, I guess, yes, I would say that there are certainly parallels now in, in, in what we found, and the research raises a lot of concerns over the ways that diagnostic categories are being used, as well as um, evidence 
around the um, effectiveness of treatments that are on offer in relation to poverty-related uh, distress. And of course, also one of the things that we've found in the research is how yeah, the, the length of time people are on medications for, and certainly within low-income communities, people tend to be left on put on antidepressants and then stay on, on antidepressants for a very, very long um, time. And I guess one of the concerns we have is what, what that really means when we don't actually know very much about the long-term implications of using these medications for many years on end. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Bing, are there any theoretical traditions or social movements you would identify with in this sense? So, so looking broadly at the um, you know critical psychiatry movement, I had considered myself to be you know on the edge of it, not an active uh, participant, but very much concerned with the diagnostic system and the, 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 the levels of antidepressant prescribing and other medications, considering the, the relative lack of effectiveness of those medications. Um, but I, I also, uh, you know, I'm very, very keen on, on ensuring that we have a really strong evidence base to, to understanding and critiquing these um, and use a whole range of traditions. So, uh, you know, I find the sociological approach is really important, uh, as well as political, um, but also psychological approaches. And um, so I'm not completely opposed to a deficit-based psychological model being incorporated into a critique. And uh, I have used kind of cr critical realism as an overarching philosophy of science and social science to bring together those ideas. And I think at one level that I think is 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 not always pushed by the critical psychiatry movement is is a kind of an understanding of the uh, the, the the neuroscience. I think the the amazing plexus of of neurons that is our brain is it, it is the kind of key to to understanding this. Firstly, that I think we do have tendencies that that are genetically driven, and I think we need to own up to those. But most importantly, that uh, the the environment in which we live, the social situation, our past traumas, all influence how our brains work um, in a very very profound way. And so, for me, the, 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 a critical realist approach helps bring those together and look at those causal links. And so, for this project, um, seeing how both past traumas and events and the, the 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 deficits within opportunities, positive opportunities, positive experiences in resource poor areas, and the excess of uh, negative influences, be it violence, interpersonal issues, or the humiliation of of of, uh, of having to go through um, various social care systems, all profoundly influence how the brain works and contribute to distress. Yeah, and so going along with that, given that there does seem to be such a strong empirical base for the relationship between poverty-related issues and mental health suffering and distress, why do you think that uh, these sort of social, broader social economic issues have been so traditionally marginalized within uh, psychiatry institutions specifically, but also within you know, health, maybe healthcare communities a little bit more broadly? Well, I think that the, the social sides have been recognized within psychiatry so within the uk there's a strong tradition of social psychiatry 
And so interventions supporting the social side have been in place for a while. Uh, I think the problem is more just a disconnect between, uh, on the one hand, a desire to have a uh, a tradition of medicine that's evidence-based, that's based on, on diseases. Um, so there are things that need fixing, um, and that 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 doesn't fit well with a, an account where these the, where distress is actually to a large extent originated from social issues. Um, so I think it's more that there's a disconnect and, and there isn't an overarching way of, of bringing them together uh, politically and amongst professional bodies. Yeah, did you have anything to add to that, Dr. Thomas? Um, I think really just to add at the moment um, that one of the things we, we found actually was we, we ran some of the findings um, past uh, trained GPs, I'm sorry, GPs in, in the UK. Uh, so we, we ran two workshops. Uh, to to talk about our findings and to, uh, to to involve some of our community partners and talking through their experiences of talking about mental health um, with, with with their doctors and we found really quite a difference in the way that that the information we were given was received by people who are being trained as GPs compared to those who um who are much more experienced GPs. And so I think there's an issue there around the way that people receive training in the UK at the moment around mental health, because what we were, some of the messages that we were trying to convey didn't really sit very comfortably with some of the nice guidelines um, around mental health and what, what GP training should be doing. Um, whereas the more experienced GPs completely understood what we were, what we were saying because they have to live and breathe this every day. I think just the other thing that I wanted to mention as well is at the moment we do have a, a government who seems to be very much in denial around things that don't, they don't like to hear. So we had uh, a UN uh, report on poverty in the UK that was released, uh, I think it was last week or the week before. And there, there are a huge number of submissions uh, to the UN rapporteur who was putting this report together from organisations across the country on poverty and the impact it was having on people's lives. And the government's response to this was to deny all of the findings of that report. Similarly, with, with the de-stress project, um, we had a BBC report uh, go out a couple of weeks ago, which uh, the, the reporter actually got some political commentary on that as well. And that there, Response, the government response was there was no evidence that poverty was being over-medicalised. Over so it's very much a kind of non-listening government, government at the moment. Um, they don't want to hear things that don't actually, I suppose, prop up their policies or don't prop up what it is that they're trying to put across. There's, there's, there's something not quite working there. It's hard to get people to listen sometimes to things that they don't say what they want them to say. And I think they, there was a particular concern about uh, any suggestion that that you know the, the the model of needing to fix people's brains through the use of antidepressants was was problematic. Um, the, a, a kind of a reluctance to see that that, that that there may be inappropriate prescribing that some people might not benefit uh, from medication. Um, whereas I think you know many of your your listeners will will recognise that. That medication might work only for a few people, 
um, and not necessarily for the reasons that 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 are um, you know that, uh, based on the original constructs that are being put across around neurotransmitter uh, changes. So so there's a real real disconnect there with 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 a, a failure to see that some of the solutions might. Uh, might lie in changing the social so, social circumstances, but then alongside that, you've got the the kind of neoliberal tradition comes in that actually you know people need to sort themselves out, and 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 that's it's interesting because it's not a long way from uh, a position of, of saying let's help people uh, use their strengths and support people in their very difficult lives, um, but but. But the current paradigm has this split between, on the one hand, sort yourself out, and on the other, uh, you've got a disorder, you need a diagnosis and a medication, um, and a failure to bring those together. Thank you. That leads me to my next question. And I noticed throughout the report, this concept of narrative figures really heavily into uh, both the way that you organize the research procedures and also how you talked about the results afterwards. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what, what does this concept of narrative offer in terms of doing a sort of critical research on mental health care systems that the Distress Project focuses on? I think uh, for us, the whole reason for using narratives is so we could understand why uh, people were experiencing what they were experiencing, but also to understand why particular healthcare responses were being framed in particular ways. Um, so in, in the Distress Project, we were concerned with you know, looking at what these dominant narratives were. So on the one hand, we have a, a government narrative or a, a government push narrative around the need to improve people's mental health um, and the need to in, in, improve access to treatment, um, which in this country means antidepressants or talking therapies. But at the same time, we have narratives around poverty and why people are in poverty. And these are generally narratives of shaming and blaming people. Um, So we were trying to, rather than just accepting the biomedical narrative that is very often used without question in mental health research, we we wanted to, you know, just to sort of critique a little bit more, start to pick it apart, see why these narratives were being put together and how the mental health narrative connected with the narratives around poverty. Um, Think about where these narratives were coming from, who was driving those narratives. And, and, you know, the thing with narratives is to ask why why is that story or that narrative being told in that particular way? What kind of agenda does it serve to actually push narratives in that way? Because there are other ways of telling the same story. And I think one of the things we've tried to do is, is to actually really bring in people's lived experience and tell the story from the perspectives of people who are living in poverty um, around their experiences of of distress or mental health issues and, you know, depending on on, um, how they themselves frame those issues. Right. And Dr. Thomas, it seems like for you in particular, uh, this way of doing research by looking at the qualitative natures of experience and focusing on narratives uh, is something that uh, you've been doing for quite some time. Curious, is, would you consider there to be a strong tradition of doing research in this qualitative vein in the UK? Uh, because it seems like, from what I've seen, there it is a little bit more common to see that sort of research done in the UK than it is to see it done in America. Um, I, I think there are 
quite a few uh, well-known US scholars working on narrative approaches as, as well. Um, but yeah, it, there is a tradition of that kind of working here. It's, it's not a it's not something everybody does. I'd say it's fairly niche, but um, certainly in the social sciences, there, there are it's a lot of um, pieces of research that take narrative approaches. Absolutely, yeah. And Dr. Bing, yeah, just kind of the same question for you as before. Do you uh, have anything to add about what the concept of narrative uh, adds to doing the sort of critical research on mental health care systems that you all are doing? Well, I think what was what has been really fascinating is listening to individuals in the community and resource poor communities and general practitioners in their situations and and thinking about how they have effectively what we've done is interpret their their perception of these narratives that are going on around within the media and government and policy and just seeing the the utter confusion that both both sets of stakeholders have um, so that you know individuals going to receive care are experiencing the sense uh, one at the same time that they they should get care in order to be responsible people particularly if they've got children and at the same and then perhaps uh, the next encounter, they can be told that they need to, that there's nothing that can be done, that they need to sort out various things themselves. So there's a real confusion and a potential for both the shame narrative, you know, of not doing it right to fit with with the the, the idea that you're you, you should you should get on and, and sort yourself out, but also the shame narrative can can be you can be shamed into receiving treatment and, and being uh, supported to uh, to or encouraged to get treatment when you might not want want any or you might not want the the medication that's on offer uh, so so it's just been fascinating getting uh, trying to access individuals response to those dominant uh, policy um, and professional narratives thank you uh, to kind of then go back to uh, the focus of the research of the Distress Project, it's talked about on uh, the website as being an interdisciplinary endeavor that uses mixed methods, research design. Uh, what would you say it is about the nature of these issues, poverty-related social issues that you explore, uh, that warrants such an eclectic approach uh, to doing research? I think it's really necessary in all research really to try and work um, in, a, in an interdisciplinary way if you can because I think you just gain so much more from doing so. I think for, for this particular project we thought it was necessary to understand different perspectives um, and experiences and, and to gain insights into people's lived experience by approaching the, top, the subject through uh, our different disciplines. Um, and I think, you know, being able to talk together about what we were seeing and to analyse what we were finding from those different disciplinary perspectives just opened up conversations that we probably wouldn't have had from a single discipline uh, project. I think as well, though, it's been really important for us to be able to disseminate the findings uh, to different audiences in a way, again, that we wouldn't have been able to do if we'd just come from one discipline. So certainly for me, I've learned an awful lot during the project about how to try and convey information effectively to health professionals. Um, and, you know, I've realised that's a very different kind of, of language and a very different 
um, kind of way of disseminating information than I, than I was used to doing in social sciences. Um, also, I mean, we, we've used conversation analysis where we've had uh, psychologists who are trained in conversation analysis looking at video recorded consultations between GPs and patients and actually trying to uh, sort of look at understanding those interactions and, and how interactions um, then influence the course of, the, of that consultation, uh, the likelihood or not of somebody taking up treatment and, and so on. And there are things that have been so insightful within this project um, and helped to like pieces of the jigsaw, I suppose, by having all of those different perspectives and all those different insights, we've been able to piece together something which we really wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Just to follow up about that, I also noticed that uh, in the report, it talks about taking an engaged approach to research. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean in, in the report about taking that engaged approach? Okay, so rather than it just being an academic study, which is led uh, by academics, an engaged approach means researchers and, uh, and people outside of the university actually working together in a meaningful way, not just at the end of the project or, you know, intermittent periods, but throughout the research process to try and understand the nature of the issues that are being researched, um, to try and co-create some of the core questions that we're asking of people and to analyse the data. It's been really fascinating to be able to take some of our data back to people in low-income communities and get their perspectives on what they're seeing in that data, because very often it's quite different from our interpretations. Um, but it's also about people outside of the university being involved in delivering and disseminating the research findings as well. So finding out who they want to disseminate the findings to and how they want to do that, what's going to be effective for them. And, and overall, it's about working together in partnership to ensure that everybody you know, benefits from the outcomes of the project, rather than it just being an academic exercise where academics get to read the findings in a, in a language that's not accessible to anyone beyond academia. It's about making the research um, you know, potentially beneficial to everybody, uh, particularly those people who may ultimately be affected by what the research is finding. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bing. Do you have anything to add about that? Well, for me, the the the, the main um, change that resulted, I think, in in the work we were doing came from uh, the engaged nature of of having individuals from communities as part of the decision making, and they were absolutely adamant that we need to. You know, we suggested, you know, maybe we could do something around uh, supporting GPs to to behave differently, and 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 they they that was absolutely what they wanted to happen. And I think so. In terms of our dissemination, while we've been able to to do, the, you know, the high quality social science and analysis, uh, we've also said, well, okay, we we will work on. Uh, producing a package for GPs to think about how to operate in this really difficult area um, and to support GPs to provide better care. And that came from the communities. That's what they wanted. And, and I think that's been really exciting to be able to add that uh, as one of the key outputs. We've tried to involve our community partners in a, in a number of um, dissemination events, so things like conferences that we've been involved in. And 
at every every time we've done this, when we've done an evaluation afterwards of people in the audience, the thing that people find most powerful and most memorable is the community, um, the, the community partners and their involvement, because the people are able to convey uh, messages in, in a way that you know makes a much more powerful impact on people. Thank you. On the other hand, then it also seems like there's a certain sense in which mental disorders represent experiences that are inherently beyond our normal interpretations of what um, norms about human behavior. Uh, And in fact, they often trouble our taken for granted understandings of the world. So would you say that there are any limitations to using the concept of narrative as a guiding frame for research such as yours? Um, I mean, I think one of the what some people see as a limitation of narrative approaches is that they don't provide facts, they don't provide the truth. Um, but you know, they're not really pretending to. They're, they're, what what narrative, narrative approaches is doing is trying to uh, seek understanding rather than a truth. It's about making sense, it's about understanding how people make sense of what's happening to them. So for me, I don't see that as a limitation. Um, but some other people may do. Uh, Dr. Bing, do you have anything to add to that? I think the narratives form an important part of of lots of types of research where you're looking at, at social phenomena and how, how things are experienced. But it's also really important to look at things from different perspectives. So I just see narratives as, mm. as one of several ways of, 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 of looking at things. That's right really helpful. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe another way of framing the question is, do you think it's possible for narratives such as the ones that you're studying uh, and sort of revealing in the discourse to be appropriated by the same systems that you're working to expose in the research? Uh, I think there's there's plenty of examples of of how narratives can get twisted and and turned. And, and, you know, I think the whole, uh, you know, we could say that the recovery movement in mental health in the UK, People argue it's been uh, expropriated. And I think we're really aware of this tension between the, the, the medicalization narrative of fix it, you're broken, you need to be sorted out, go and get treatment. That's the right thing to do versus the opposite one. And so one of one of the things that we've we've been focusing on, particularly in the in the, in the support to practitioners, is is trying to create a, a way of working that bridges those two. You know, go, so that we don't go down the, the the line of which which could easily happen of saying, well, actually, you know, medication doesn't work, so this is something that you shouldn't do at all. So, as practitioners, that's just not your business. Um, distress is 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 no longer on the agenda for GPs to to manage. Um, so that's certainly not not what we're saying. Um, so, so trying to bridge that is tricky, right? And it really leads me to my next question. And I'm curious about uh, the three categories of narratives that you uh, parsed out in your final report. Uh, You described them as neoliberal narratives, uh, shame narratives, and medicalization narratives. And you talked about these as separate categories, but you also seem to talk about how they're interlinked and how they they show up in complex ways. Uh, So could you unpack these three a little bit for me and just talk a little bit about how you see them as being interlinked? Okay, um, Richard, you can um, step in because you're quite good at describing narratives. So I think you know we have we have a neoliberal narrative where people with distress are seen by others as having some kind of social or behavioural problem that they need to get fixed, they need to sort out for themselves. 
um, you know, to be seen as being responsible citizens. And, and what we found in the research is that um, people very often feel quite guilty about um, it's a kind of it's a kind of narrative that makes people feel bad about themselves, uh, but also quite helpless in terms of knowing how to respond to this. Because if you're living in poverty, you know, and there's not much you can do to kind of get out of that situation, but you're constantly being told that it's your own fault, you know, then it's, it's a very um, damaging narrative um, unless people are actually given the resources to be able to help themselves. We also have the shame narrative uh, where people who are not considered to be contributing to society are somehow seen as being reckless or irresponsible. And that's the kind of narrative that we've seen very much in political rhetoric and in the tabloid media in this country. So it's um, very much a shaming and blaming narrative where people who are living in poverty and particularly people who are reliant on uh, welfare are seen as, as, a, as a problem and are seen as you know, scrounges is one of the words that, that springs to mind. And what we see here is that people feel like they're being judged and actually then they, they, they avoid seeking help. They, they feel like if they, don't, if they go along to, um, to get help, then they're going to be judged for, for what other people see as reckless behaviour. So we found that in many instances, people, particularly people with young children, actually took themselves out of the system. They didn't seek help anymore because seeking help was more stressful. The, the structures that originally had been put in place to support people actually were, were viewing people through a lens of risk and not really helping people as a result. And then we have the medicalisation narrative, which Richard has already talked about, in which mental distress is just seen as a medical issue that requires medical intervention. And, and we found a number of um, GPs talking about mental health issues through a medicalisation narrative, but then also GPs talking about poverty-related distress as a social issue. But one of the interesting things we found is that really even, even the GPs that saw uh, mental distress as a social issue still ended up medicalizing people's problems because there's very few other options available to GPs. Um, so it was very difficult for them to be able to offer any other kind of response. I mean, I go back to the, uh, to the idea that actually people are, are feeling conflicted by by dominant narratives that don't always fit easily with each other. In the one moment, an individual with children will avoid help because uh, they're scared of having their children taken away um, for not being seen as good enough parents. Um, and then in the next moment, they, uh, in order to get benefits to support their children, they, they would need to find have a diagnosis, go to the job centre and, and make that very clear. Um, and then... Uh, it, uh, th th they, they might need to be seen to be going to the doctor to get an antidepressants, and that it would be, you know, the right thing to do to to get to get treatment in order to help their children, and then they get referred to a service uh, who then says, "Well, you're not good enough, so you're not ill enough, um, so you don't actually, you're not suitable, and not, you're not a candidate for this kind of treatment." Uh, so, so you have to deal with it on your own. So, there's a lot of conflicting uh, narratives that that, that I, I think are very uh, are very confusing and bewildering for people. Right. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like this idea of uh, risk assessment 
or, or identifying and assessing risk and then intervening uh, on risk at the social level seems to be pretty pervasive across these narratives. Uh, it also seems like a major focal point of this study was how policymakers use these narratives to control public discourse about mental health. Could you, either of you, speak a little bit about how you see this as being related to maybe the privatization and capitalization of mental health uh, and mental health care or health care more generally? Well, I'm not convinced uh, that this is the main issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say that, you know, within the, within the UK, you know, we have mental health services that are state-funded and through, through taxation. Um, and while there's some services operate outside of the NHS and are, are paid for by the NHS, um, and, and there is a, um, you know, there is a, a market system in the sense that those, those services are commissioned, I think that these these things operate within it, it, uh, that these problems are operating within it, effectively a social um, uh, a social care provision of of you know you know effectively the NHS is is a residual socialist innovation and they're still operating within that uh, um, fifty years on since since the NHS um, uh, formed so I think it's the you've got a neoliberal overlay of a, an essentially professional based idea that you can fix people and that you've got these two two problems that are operating uh, together and that the you know we don't have the same issues of capitalization that you have in in the US right. so i think things can happen uh, within a state system yeah thank you that does make sense uh, dr thomas do you have anything to add to that I think Richard's put that beautifully, to be honest. I mean, I think the only thing I would add to that is one area where we where we did see a lot of um, discontent amongst people in low-income in communities was when they were being reassessed for benefits, for, for welfare benefits, and they were having to go along for what, what in the UK is called work capability assessment, uh, and where their fitness for work is reassessed. And in the UK, that is increasingly done through private companies um, and that did cause a lot of angst amongst people who were having to go outside of their comfort zone often to a town or city that they weren't really familiar with to be assessed by somebody they didn't know and in, in a situation where the Decisions made by their GPs and the expert advice given through given by their GPs could actually be overruled by a complete stranger who'd never met them before. So that's really the only thing I wanted to add to to what Richard said. But I, I agree with Richard that the issues around privatisation and capitalisation of mental health are not really the core issues that we've been concerned with because it's not such an issue in the UK. And that seems like an important point to make that these neoliberal narratives can often be overlaid on top of public discourse, governments, and other essentially public services and not just private services. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. For me, that's also closely related to another point that you bring up in the final report, uh, where you talk about one of the main problems with these narratives is the way that they focus at the level of the individual, uh, and they propose interventions at the level of the individual. Uh, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this and maybe say whether or not you see this maybe as primarily a conceptual issue or an ethical issue or somehow both? I'd say it's probably a bit of both. I mean, I think in the context of the de-stress study, which was specifically concerned with low-income communities and poverty-related distress, 
it's, it's absolutely vital to take on the wider contextual and social societal issues um, rather than placing blame, sorry, placing focus just at individual level. Because in these communities, if you focus at individual level only, you know, it's it's uh, reiterating blame at an individual level for people's behaviour. I mean, certainly that's the way it's being played out here. That's, that's the kind of narrative that's been spun here. And it fuels a stereotype around individuals as being feckless and irresponsible, rather than actually looking at that much wider context um, around what are causing these issues, poverty-related issues in the first place. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Bing, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I... I I see that both are really important. So within any new model that we want to be putting forward, we have to understand the, the local context, the, you know, not the culture, the, the structural uh, problems in terms of, you know, oppression and power, and, uh, but also the, you know, the difficult relationship issues within, within cultures and the subcultures. Um, we were aware that, you know, within poor communities, there's, we're not just dealing with the oppression of uh, externally through through austerity, but also individuals are concerned with violence and uh, you know particularly violence to women and children that that needs to be uh, looked at. Um, difficult relationships. So so I think taking the the whole community perspective is important, but I also think that understanding things at an individual level is is really critical. So while I think the you know the, the, the message is wrong of of of, of having a, a purely uh, pathology based idea that there's a, a disorder and that needs fixing by professionals, um, uh, instead I think we need a highly individualized understanding for each person. Now that doesn't need to necessarily mean that uh, each individual needs to uh, to to gain help from healthcare providers quite the opposite i think we we need to be moving towards uh, an understanding of mental well-being and distress that's integrated so that as 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 each of us we can look at our strengths and our weaknesses and 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 our experiences understand ourselves in our social context at the moment how that affects how we feel but also recognize our strengths so that we can see where we have agency and can act to change things so not just being uh, uh, expecting to be to be fixed either by benefits or by medication so it, it, it does kind of lead to a, a kind of communitarian type perspective or, a, a, or you know, some of the third way perspectives that never really developed a, a proper theoretical approach. But so for me, it is, it is a both and. We, we need to have the individual uh, perspective, but it's about supporting the individual to use their, uh, their incredible strengths, imagination and um, abilities in order so that they they feel better uh, and can participate better. And at the same time, we have to, we have to abolish the structural inequalities, which unless they are abolished, will continue to create um, an, an unequal distribution of, of, of context. And what I mean by that is there's a, there's an unequal distribution of things that support people's mental health, you know, opportunities for jobs, uh, peaceful environments, recreational spaces, 
um, and there's a and there's an unequal distribution of pre- things that cause mental health problems, such as interpersonal violence, uh, trauma, um, uh, humiliation through going through benefit systems, uh, work which is shaming, etc. Right. So, uh, for me, it's a both-and situation. Um, and if you want, I could talk a bit about how that needs to play out in the consultations and what mm. what practitioners need to, to need to think about and what services need to be set up within these communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Because the study seems to indicate uh, general over-reliance uh, on general practitioners in treating mental health issues. Uh, and I, yeah, I was wondering if you could, Dr. Bing, talk a little bit more about what you see as being the implications of, of the narratives that you uncovered in your research for how general practitioners might approach mental health. Yeah, so essentially we have to find a, a middle path so that uh, practitioners can understand uh, individuals in, in distress and and individuals can understand themselves not as uh, having, having uh, um, pathology that needs fixing, but um, support that can make uh, possibly a, a, a small difference. So, so I will. I want to us to develop a, a, a package of uh, an intervention for supporting practitioners to work with individuals um, that helps them understand themselves as biopsychosocial wholes. So, what is it that in the past has has made a difference positively or negatively? What's going on now that is causing distress? How do you understand? different aspects of uh, of distress at a um you know at a psychopathology psycho, you know so so psychopathology is a, a kind of not a very popular word in critical psychiatry but understanding the different types of distress is important so is it you know rumination and and uh, overthinking things is it mood going up and down uh, in a way that that feels uncontrollable is it uh, perceptions um, such as uh, hearing things when there's no one there, or, or or seeing seeing things, or flashbacks. So, so I think we have to help people to to see these as the the natural and normal responses to trauma and difficult situations, um, and to understand at, at an individual level what is happening, um, and then to support people to think of the the responses. So the responses might be social. It might be trying to address the, the, the interpersonal things that are going on, trying to get support uh, out of um, problems of, of poverty. But also it might be about learning to deal with some of these very difficult internal experiences of, of mood instability. Uh, so for practitioners, they need to learn some really difficult skills uh, one of the most important things was was that we learned from the project was how people feel judged and uh, by practitioners and and small things can really make a difference to make people feel judged but also to make people feel part of a common humanity so uh, encouraging practitioners just to make uh, to make small changes to how they approach uh, individuals to to support so that they see uh, an individual as 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 a, a friend as a as a fellow member of of the community uh, and as having done something productive so really recognizing the good things that people are doing the the amazing uh things that they they are doing to deal with their distress mm. to make a real difference 
and alongside that, um, working out, you know, whether medication might make a small difference for some people and testing it out. So practitioners need to understand, and this is really difficult for, for them to do so, that, that medication won't work in most people and might not work at all. So learning to be honest about that evidence base is really critical and sharing that uncertainty as to whether it might make a small difference might be helpful or not mm. um, as a part of an overall package uh, is is critical mm. so those are the kind of things that are really difficult for practitioners to take on board because they're so used to the fixing diagnostic model of medicine Amen. but around of that you need a community approach as well so we need to have um, a range of opportunities that people can often go straight to. They don't always need to come to a GP. So they don't need a diagnosis to, of depression to know that they're sad because they've got debt. They need to understand and for it to be part of a common narrative that, yeah, being in debt is going to make you unhappy. That's understandable. Let's go and sort your debt out and go straight to the debt advice. Um, so bypassing the general practitioner. And I think that's what I was getting at it and you were picking up in terms of, you know, GPs not always uh, being the only answer. So for many things, people can learn about reconceptualizing mental distress and well-being, then recognize what they need and go straight to it without necessarily uh, needing the GP. But on the other hand, inevitably, we will see many people uh, in distress and we need to support them in that process of learning um, a different way of thinking about mental health problems mm-hmm. that is both uh, compassionate, but also allowing them to take some control themselves. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And you both talked a lot about how politics in, in a more general sense uh, plays a role in these processes, particularly in terms of how uh, the government might propose austerity measures, uh, which then ends up individualizing the problem and, and creating this deficit-based model. Uh, but then I'm curious, on the other side, too, maybe in a more organic political sense, uh, could one of you speak to maybe like what role peer support groups could play here? Uh, something like the Hearing Voices Network or, or other peer support groups that, that exist to uh, provide a sense of solidarity around these sort of issues. Yeah, I think we found um, that these types of peer support were probably one of the most effective uh, means of supporting people in low-income communities. One of the big issues that people are facing who are living in poverty is social isolation. And this is partly because people don't know other people in their community anymore. What, what we've seen in this country is that very often people get, if they're in social housing, they'll be moved to different areas of the city. So they get moved away from their social networks. If you don't have money to travel, you don't have time to travel, you, you have young children or whatever, relying on public transport can be really problematic. So people do feel very, very socially isolated. And at the same time, some of the areas where people are living, people feel afraid to go out. You know, they don't want to go out and spend time outside trying to meet people they don't, because they don't want to leave their homes, and particularly, again, people with, with young kids. There's a genuine fear about, about going out and engaging with other people um, when you don't know people. So social isolation is, is a massive issue here. People are also constantly feeling judged by uh, other members of the public, and including from within their own communities. 
um, people feel judged when in their interactions with service providers. You know, like I said before, many of these organisations that have been of services that have been set up to support people, actually, some of the rhetoric that gets used when um, when these people are talking to um, community members is, is very judgmental, and you only have to have a discussion with people to hear some of that. Um, that some of that narrative coming out. I mean, we have we had had a number of informal discussions with professionals who would talk about people living in poverty as well. You know, they, they chose that lifestyle, or they can't be bothered to help themselves. I think they like being mentally ill. I think you know, it, it gives them something to talk about. You know, those kinds of things were said in so many conversations that we had. So you know, there is people really fear being judged. Um, and what, what we what we found is when people did get involved in peer support groups, these these groups were enormously helpful to them because they provided a non-judgmental space for people. And they were normally run at times and places and places that suited people. They could get to them. They could take their children along. Um, and and people certainly had very very powerful friendship groups. They, those had felt able to join those groups have really benefited from them. So for those people who do feel that they can join those groups, absolutely they're a lifeline. Um, of course, what we're also seeing with austerity is huge resource cuts to supporting um, community groups. So places for people to meet, like public libraries, that's becoming more and more difficult because libraries are being closed down or having their hours cut. Um, and really people are struggling to get even small amounts of money to run these groups so for example craft groups are quite big um, or quite big in the, in the areas we were working but just to get a small amount of money to hire a room for an hour and to buy a few basic craft materials people don't have that money and there's no one now to get it um, so it doesn't take much, but it's being made more and more difficult for people to actually be able to do that in any kind of long-term sense. So, so many of the groups that we did come across were run very sporadically or for very short periods of time until they could get a little bit more funding in. So absolutely, these groups are vital to people. They give people a sense of reassurance, a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. But the governments in the UK, successive governments, are reducing funding for these activities all of the time, making it harder for people to connect. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Bing, do you have anything to add to that? I, I completely agree that, that um, a whole range of support and self-help uh, groups are really important as a part of the suite of um, support that needs to be available in communities, both signposted from GPs or for people to go direct to and that they can operate in the way that Felicity describes. I think at this point it's, it's worth also making sure that we're not um, uh, making out that these are going to solve uh, all the problems. I, my, my view on these things is that for most people, most initiatives, if they are helpful, are helpful a bit. And occasionally you have initiatives that are transformational uh, for individuals. So we shouldn't set people up to have over high expectations. Um, the other kind of interesting phenomena that's that started to spring up that relates to, to an older phenomena of um, 
uh, from the left. So, so uh, you know, the, the left have advocated for more services for a long time. Um, now that is slightly in conflict with the kind of things that we're we're saying. So we don't necessarily need more medical services. Mm-hmm. So there are there are um, people on the left who are arguing we need more and more mental health services, including diagnosis and medication, etc. Um, I think we need to be 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 careful and, and really aware of that and, and support people to to, to have a no, more nuanced uh, view. The 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 kind of complicating phenomena that's that's coming up in some areas, um, and I think was evident um, last uh, last year with the you know following the Twitter storm around Johan Hari and the Lancet uh, meta analysis of people saying you know we we deserve our medication we want our medication it, 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 you know the the, the 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 proud to be depressed and proud to be on medication type groups that were that that, that were becoming evident on social media um so so it, it it's interesting just to to be aware of uh, of all of the different aspects that, that that can occur yeah it strikes me that maybe the main thing is just not to overgeneralize all people who are showing up to receive services for any number of problems they might be facing and also to understand the way that both politicians on the right and the left tend to overgeneralize in their own way uh, either by proposing austerity measures that individualize the problem or maybe over-medicalizing it and, and providing services in ways that might not always be helpful. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, I just want to thank you both for your time. I know you both are really busy and I really appreciate you being here, but I just want to give you both the opportunity to maybe close up by saying something about maybe how this research uh, might change both of your practices or professions individually in terms of your individual practices. Um, uh, will it change the way that you approach research in the future or the way that you practice uh, in your own general practice, Dr. Bing? I think it's already changed how I, I'm, I'm working. So I'm, I'm absolutely much more concerned to ensure that every individual who I see um, is it hopefully comes away feeling that they are a valued a human being by by making you know small changes to how, how I interact with individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, from the research point of view, um, you know a renewed commitment to engaged um, uh, working uh, with uh, with individuals and ensuring that they are a really important part of driving the direction of of the research. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'd just like to say, I think that, there, that if we can bridge these, these very difficult paradoxes and divides, we can make sense of this. And um, because there is, you know, there's no magic bullet for distress. Um, I think it is possible to, 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 to take a whole system and a, and a set of resources around a community and create a much more positive um, set of uh, interventions that operate both at a community level and within a consultation level that neither pathologize nor uh, shun people and tell them to, to sort themselves out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Dr. Thomas? Yeah, I think just to reiterate what Richard's uh, been saying about the engaged research approach, I think for me, although I've always tried to um, involve people in the research that I'm doing, actually, this I think this project. Uh, really sort of brought home to me how important that was 
we were able, we were very lucky in, um, in being able to have an engaged research approach right throughout this research, right from the sort of conceptualization of the issue that we wanted to research uh, through to steering the project, thinking of questions, thinking how we analyzed the research, how we disseminated the research. And involving people in that process throughout has been so insightful uh, and so important for us. And, and for me, it's certainly, and any research I do in the future will absolutely to take a similar approach. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I just want to reiterate again just how much of a pleasure it was talking to you both today uh, and how grateful I am that you took time out of your busy schedules to come and talk to me today. Great. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.